I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory in spite of all terror. Everyone will be made to choose a side in the 21st century sexual revolution as it takes unflinching aim at the very existence of the family. Public schools are now fighting for the authority and responsibility to raise your children. Why? Because parents are the enemy. I kid you not, they're saying it out loud, and you'll get the straight answer here from Dr. Michael Thiessen and myself, Timothy Tyso, today on The Other Club. No, I was just waving at the people. Hey, everybody. It's great to be with you. This show was produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Tim and I are having quite a day today so far. My allergies make me look like a drug addict. You will see lots of cuts and pastes. And Tim sits in his astute office looking just ready to tackle the topics of the day. Liberty Coalition Canada, something that Tim and I have been a part of for quite a while, exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness and to defend those who stand. Christian Week exists to present a balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. Uh, My good friend Tim Tyso uh, is lead editor over at ChristianWeek.org. Everybody go and have a look at Tim's independent work over there at ChristianWeek.org. So yes, Tim, as we get started, apparently teachers good, parents bad, and stop. We, the state have spoken, teachers virtuous, parents bad. And so that's what we're podcasting today. They're going after our children. We've been saying this for three years. They are now, everybody, like... Four prominent newspapers, the entire Canadian news uh, cycle is fixated on whether or not parents should be able to parent their children through what we have historically known as gender dysphoria, which is something we're going to look into today as a problem kids may wrestle with. But the question is state or parent guidance, and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we got a couple events coming up, Mike. Uh, we have Liberty Coalition Canada Podcasts Live, Liberty Podcasts Live. We've got a couple of these coming up back-to-back, actually, Monday, October 23rd at Trinity Bible Chapel in Waterloo. You're going to see Liberty Dispatch live all the guys out in full force there. Um, you can check out a link uh, to that. We're going to put links in the show notes to get tickets there. Um, and you can meet us on the 23rd for Liberty Dispatch Live or join us on Tuesday, October 24th at Trinity Bible Church in Burlington. Don't mix those two up. Uh, for the Liberty Lounge Live, uh, you get to see one of my famed and fabled monologues in person with the whole gang. It's going to be a great time, Um, but you're going to see links in this show for uh, getting tickets to both of those. Uh, Both nights are from 7.30 to 9.30, and they include a live recording of Liberty Coalition Canada podcasts, the Dispatch, and the Lounge. 
uh, you'll see Michael Thiessen, Tim Tyso, Andrew DiBartolo, and Matthew Halleck live along with some special guests. $25 is going to get you in. What an incredible uh, price to see your uh, Liberty Boys in action, and it will cover the event costs. And we're also going to do some fundraising um, for our legal cases during those evenings. So um, join us for that. That's going to be a blast. Uh, our first live event. Uh, Mike, there's something else you want to tell us about as well. Yeah. Other than the fact that Tim is going to look good and skinny and strong while the rest of us are also going to look tall. in different ways. And tall. Don't forget yeah. about tall. The, the bane That's of the my existence about- is the Tyso genes, uh, both the blue genes and the genetic ones. Uh, and so you're going to see us look at the, that's just a taste. This is going to be a fun night, everybody. And we are raising money for our legal cases, which are really important. And we are at the, yep. the, the war chest is very lean right now. And, uh, that means that our court cases and our legal representation need your help. Uh, another event coming up, Tim, and we'll get through this, everybody spark leadership conference, October 31st to November 1st, two days where we're going to platform a number of Canadian pastor stories in the U S. So we are hoping that, uh, we will spark the American church into flame as we give testimony about what's going on and, and, and folks in the U S uh, who have been listening to our podcast, they are helping other Americans realize how this, uh, how this this testing point, how this uh, petri dish that uh, that the WEF calls Canada, uh, is really leading uh, individuals into a lot of tyranny. So uh, come to the Spark Conference, uh, Spark Leadership Conference. Tickets are fifty dollars. It's going to be in South Carolina. Enjoy the weather, and our American friends come and learn uh, what happens if you don't publicly reject wokeness. And you don't publicly preach God's word. We're going to go again today into a real issue where people don't know what to say. And we're going to talk about the need for an articulate public biblical response. So let's dive into it because everybody's tired of announcements. Yeah. So getting into it, uh, Mike, the reason we're jumping into this topic um, is because it was <laughs> we didn't really choose it. Um, the, the media chose this for us. I, I was out on my lunch uh, earlier this week and had Ontario Today on the CBC radio. And I don't know if I do it because I can't help myself or I just it's for research purposes. Um, but Ontario Today had their daily noon call in show um, asking the question, do children have a right to privacy when it comes to changing their pronouns or should parents be involved in the decision? Um, this, this is coming after New Brunswick and, uh, oh, sorry, New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, yes, have created provincial policies that mandate school boards to notify parents when a child under the age of 16 wants to change his or her pronouns. Uh, so the CBC hosts a call-in show to ask the question, is this the right policy? Uh, in the introduction to the show, Amanda Pfeffer uh, noted that the Human Rights Commission has already ruled in favor of the so-called privacy rights of a child, citing that it's a charter issue. So this is the charter rights of a child to be able to have privacy from their parents when they want to change their pronouns. Uh, Ontario has not adopted a policy mandating uh, schools to do this, but has stated through their education minister, Stephen Lecce, Um, that their position is that parents are the legal guardians, that they love their children and they should be fully aware of what's going on with their children. This is being framed as a student's right versus a parent's right. Uh, The first guest on the show was a a 16-year-old so-called trans male, so 
previously a female now to be viewed as a male um, in the eyes of, of the show. Um, this individual has undergone hormone therapy. Uh, the expert guest, which is typical format for the CBC show, was a homosexual man who decisively favored a child's so-called privacy right over a parent's right, saying and echoing the theme of the show being that homes can be an unsafe place for children to discuss these issues with their parents. Uh, and that essentially a school should be a, har a harboring safe community for a child to be able to discuss these things and to experiment even without the parents knowledge without the parents consent um and there's just two point there's two things mike i want to say uh just as as a way of kind of prying this open first of all even the conservative government in ontario has conceded that it might be a legitimate option for a child to undergo so-called sex change therapy whether whether it's just a social transition or it's a chemical or physical one with surgery. The government has conceded that this is a legitimate option, but just that parents ought to be involved in the decision. Um, the, the premise of the show already is that this is a legitimate option and their two guests um, give away their bias is that children should be able to do this. And the second uh, observation I want to make is that there's a really dark reality behind these statements. This, this so-called expert um, guests that they had on as well as many of the parents who are calling in in favor of their child's right to privacy. They're not saying that there should be no adult present in these decisions, that a child should not have any guidance whatsoever from an adult in terms of their desire to so-called gender transition. They're saying that the adults that should not be present are the parents. They're saying that there are some adults who should be present in this, and those are the guidance counselors and teachers and so-called professionals. They ought to be allowed to guide a child through these radical ideas, but parents cannot be trusted with the development and uh, guidance of their own children. And uh, that alone should make your bones chill and rattle a little bit that these people are saying out in the open, um, you can trust us with your children but we don't trust you and we're going to use the courts and the criminal system and, and all of the above to enforce that relationship. Um, so you're kind of seeing where I'm going with this. Yeah. The, the courts, the criminal system, the institution of the school, um, wherever the professionals or the ideologues in the professional community want it to be done. So first of all, everybody listening to this podcast, pause and think we are talking openly and publicly about children mutilating themselves, denying the very biological sex that they have been created in. Just take a pause, a moment in history. Sodom and Gomorrah will look back and judge this perverse generation. Like we are beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. Number two, Tim, you've nailed it on the head as far as the issue. So they're going to want to make it about a rights issue. They're going to want to make it about a privacy issue. Um, rights and privacy have limitations. And we're going to talk about those limitations being limited by God, limiting by an authority. But you've correctly, you've correctly parsed it out, Tim, perfectly, that it is not that adult advice is a problem. It's just whose advice and 
and that is really, again, the nature of all of these little debates. I don't know how, how many times we're going to have to bring this up, but the nature of the battle, everybody, is always whose authority? Who are you going? You, you've, got a, you've got a canvas of your life to paint. It's going to have, it's going to have borders. It's going to have a frame. There are limitations. You, you, you cannot be a, um, a prancing pony, but somebody's going to tell you that you can be a prancing pony. So we have to talk about this very seriously. Tim, I've been responding to this issue, you know, online by really looking through a, a most recent Toronto star article uh, by uh, Mal uh, Julie Malbuck um, or Malbut. Um, so this is an article uh, and the article talks about it's not a privilege nor it's a privilege, not a right to know your kid's gender identity. And so we have uh, this author who is the mother of a, of a, of a boy uh, named Jack that, or, or that she is calling a boy. So sorry, we're talking about a girl and they have given this girl uh, new pronouns, new clothes, a new haircut, a new name. And this mom says, giving this girl all of these new things. So to treat her like Zach, she literally in, in a, in a published article in a newspaper taken seriously calls all of that a nothing burger. So that, that gives you the, that gives you the mindset of the individual that we're working with here. Okay. I, I, can I just jump in for one second, Mike? Cause I just wanted to, uh, kind of highlight that word really quickly. A parent is admitting that they've allowed their child to change their name, to get a new haircut, to resemble a, a boy rather than a girl, to change, to change the way they dress. So as to change their appearance and the, perce the perception of who they are. And this, and this parent says it's a, it's a nothing burger like this. This is no different than if my child chooses French fries or onion rings at Harvey's. And, and, and you have to see just the way they downplay this stuff. Uh, it, it's a, it's abusive and it is, um, it, it's totally disconnected from reality. But of course, these are no big deals because the hair can grow back and all these things can grow back. But the, the whole uh, perception of who this child has become in public has changed. That's not a nothing burger. Your name is not a nothing burger. It's literally gaslighting. Yeah. It's, it's literally saying yeah. there's Thank no you. more light in the room. It's complete darkness. Mm -hmm. But wait a minute. There's light in the room and you should see it. It, 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 it mm -hmm. is. It, it's deception. Okay. So look at, first of all, uh, the article goes on to talk about a young girl who is making these decisions as young as the age of eight and at the age of eight, now moving to the age of 11. So again, an eight-year-old is a clearly shapeable mind, is a clearly shapeable person. And again, so, so you, you have this idea of like, no, kids are going to choose, but we see the worldview, we see the attitude of the mother coming out all the way through and without a cross-examination, without the sitting down of the mother and saying, did you really shape this young girl to want to act like a boy? You don't know. You just have to take their word for it. And you know, listen to that phrase, take my word for it. We're going to talk about it later. So the article goes on to say, by the time he has his first appointment, again, we're talking about a girl pretending to be a boy. 
At SickKids Gender Clinic on in August 2024, he'll be 12 and a half, and we will have been on the wait list for 18 months. If four years into his transition, he chooses gender-affirming medication, it will not be an impulsive decision. Now, again, we're going to parse this out a little bit. So first of all, I agreed that it will not be an impulsive decision. I agree with her on that. This has been a clearly conditioned decision. When you put yourself on a wait list, when you give a new name, new clothing, new haircut, all of these things, that's not, that, that is a, a, a very well-developed, a very well-nurtured decision. But you know what, Tim? Just about seven seconds of research um, to dig into this because I, I was a little bit startled. You know, the, the, the Sick Kids Transgender Clinic. Well, what is that? I, I have a son who received life-saving treatment at Sick Kids for hepatoblastoma, a, a childhood liver uh, childhood liver cancer with a, with a tumor growing. Uh, I have a daughter who has had her spina bifida monitored at SickKids. Well, well, what is a transgender clinic at SickKids? This is significantly close to me. So just did a little bit of research. Listen to this off of, uh, off, the, off of the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children website. SickKids is home to one of the largest transgender youth clinics in Canada. When youth arrive at the clinic, the first thing they are asked is their preferred name and pronoun. The most common response is an ear-to-ear -ear grin. For some, this is a pivotal turning point where they finally feel seen and validated. Our goal is to provide transgender youth with care they need and help them navigate a health care system that is not always trans-friendly. For transgender youth, puberty is terrifying. Their bodies change in ways at odds with their identity. Transgender youth are at high risk for self-harm and suicide, but sick kids is here to support them. It gets worse, Tim. I've got to read this because this is this is sick kids. You can't. You got to pause. It gets worse. Then you can talk. Being trained, you got to listen to everybody in the medical community. You got to listen to this really carefully. We're talking about medicine. Transgender is not a pathology. It's an identity. When a baby is born, we assign them a gender based on their genitals. But sometimes a person's identity and how they feel in their head and heart doesn't align with the label. Again, listen to the use of that word. Doesn't align with the label. Doesn't align with their genitalia. Not the label about their genitalia. Okay, going in. That's what being trans is. It means your gender identity does not align with the identity someone else assigned to you. Now, before you jump in, Tim, just a few more very important words. Being transgender is not a pathology. So look up the word pathology. The science of the causes and effects of diseases, especially the branch of science that deals with the laboratory examination of samples of body tissue for diagnostic and forensic purposes. So transgenderism or being transgender is not a science. There's, there's no science. There's, there's, there's no, on a medical scientific hospital uh, website, they're basing the entire transgender clinic on something that is not a pathology, which is not science. Now, 
you just go and you look into, um, well, what about gender dysphoria? Like, w w what could possibly be going on here? E e you know, they're not looking at the science. They've just decided it's an identity. Listen to this. When you look up transgender dysphoria, it says this. The causes for gender incongruence are unknown. Okay, again, no science, no observable, no observable cause or effect, and no observable um, diagnosis, which is an actual, no actual cure. Okay, but gender identity, okay, so again, for you and I, Tim, identity matches our genitalia. And so, but gender identity, and, and for them, their identity does not match their genitalia. This is, this is how they say it for everybody. Gender identity likely reflects genetic, biological, environmental, and cultural factors. So what are they saying? They say, well, we have no idea what would cause you to be transgender and to have an identity counter to your biology. But what we do know is that everybody finds their identity through genetic, biological, so that's referring to those of us who would acknowledge the body, environmental, and cultural factors. So everybody, listen, you go through this and it all is, it, it's all boiled down to one issue. My imagination says prancing ponies can fly because I grew up watching my my little pony and science has now been thrown out the door to say uh okay well i I'm, we're not going to observe science but we're going to start an entire clinic it starting points are so important so tim jump in i know i've held you off for so long man that was a tease so the first thing i want to point out there is that um when when you you look at this it, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, admittedly, for this episode, but I, but I think we need to do this in order to help us who, who, who want to see society not collapse in a whirlwind of God's judgment that we need to understand. When you go to the language of this transgender clinic that says we help children navigate a healthcare system that is not always trans friendly, the reason for that, if I can get behind the, the, rhetoric here is that the healthcare system in the West has traditionally been based upon, as you pointed out, Mike, science, as in genetics, biology, DNA, um, uh, tissue research. Your, your son tra traveled there to be cured from cancer, from a tumor that you say was on his liver. Very, very deadly cancer. Uh, this is this is the practice of science, the the unfolding and discovery of God's creation and tech, techniques in order to battle the effects of sin and degeneracy that do actually save the, the lives of children. The reason the healthcare system is not quote unquote trans friendly is because, as you pointed out, transgenderism is unscientific. It's not based in reality in any aspect, and they're admitting that. So they they're, so they're. They they need to now overhaul the healthcare system in order to bring in an ideology that is purely based on imagination. And I will go so far, and I, I wanna, I'm going to say this as a um, based upon social contagion. You can look up anorexia nervosa, which is the name given for the, the, an eating disorder that 
we've all known many people have struggled with anorexia. Um, it has been shown uh, to be a factor and a result of um, a, a social contagion. You you look up now and you can basically see an accepted uh, and it, one of the accepted premises of anorexia is that it's a type of eating disorder that can be contagious through social contagion. Uh, studies have shown that the social contagion contributes to the spread of eating disorders among young, young women with social media uh, intensifying this process. So th these are these are coping mechanisms, maladapted coping mechanisms to deal with social pressures. By the way, did anybody enjoy puberty? Did anybody really relish that time in life? Is that anybody's highlight of growing up? Right. The reason so so they're they're creating solutions that that radically remove people from the natural course of life. No, and they call and, this medicine. And you bring it up as far as puberty because that's the exact point by which our sexuality, our, our maleness and our femaleness really starts to become distinct. When men start pumping testosterone through their bodies and women start pumping estrogen through their bodies and we become distinct and we always, all of a sudden we wake up. I, I've parented three children into this stage already. And I am telling you that every single, I have two boys, one girl who's, who's in this situation. Do you want to know how you, for years you can ask a boy this question. Hey, do you notice the girls around you? And they'll go, uh, and then they hit puberty and you catch them. You go, hey, you just notice that girl? Now they'll go, uh, but, but it's a totally different phase. Because it's like, yes, I did. And why did you catch me? And then you, you all of a sudden, you, your, your young daughter starts putting on makeup and, and, and starts trying to make herself look a little bit more beautiful for the people when they arrive and, and wants to be because that's so, so they know, they know full well, it's an absolute lie. Oh, puberty is so dramatic. No, they know that they've got to start the counseling prior to puberty because this thing solves itself. Gender dysphoria, 80% of children who suffer from gender dysphoria, it goes away the instant they start puberty. So Tim, this is why the whole episode, everybody, this is why the whole episode, Tim and I are going to talk a lot. This is going to be a long episode. I'm really sorry because we're both really fired up. But this comes down to two things and you have to remember this, Christian. You have to remember it. You have to remember it and you have to remember it. Whose authority are you listening to? And it is the battle is for nothing less than for complete control of your family. That is it. So let's just go to starting points because whose authority are you going to believe? Scripture teaches that a male and a female were created by God. Genesis 1.27, Jesus repeats this definition that God created them male and female in his image. He created them. Number two, God created the family by a parent being anybody who has a child, meaning God created the natural institution of the family by men and women procreating to create other men and women who would then procreate. Key biblical texts when we talk about the family are the one of the first commandment uh, in in the Ten Commandments that that is dealing with vertical relationships, family to family, is a child command: honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. We come to Psalm 27, 10, and this is a negative example of somebody crying out 
uh, to God saying, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Proverbs 23, 22, listen to your father who gave you life and do, dis and do not despise your mother when she is old. The basic definition of a parent is someone who by sexual activity procreates and creates you and then by that creation bears responsibility for you and you are as a child responsible to obey their commands. I want to quote everybody from uh, a, a Charles Spurgeon sermon, and he is quoting from Proverbs 6, 20 to 23. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not the law of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you go, it will lead you. When you sleep, it shall keep you. When you awake, it will talk with you for the command Mint is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are a way of life. Then Spurgeon goes on to say, you have here before you the advice of King Solomon, rightly reckoned to be one of the wisest men. And verily, he must have been wise indeed to exceed the wisdom of David the king of Israel. It is worthwhile to listen to Solomon and what he has to say. But it also must be good, and then when you are ready to finish a man with Solomon, also to listen to one greater than Solomon, who is here, the Spirit of God who inspired the Proverbs. What's he saying? Solomon rightly saw all of these things when, when he was teaching, but where did Solomon get it? By the leading of God himself. Folks, if you go and you just get into a Twitter war right now, just go on, get any of these articles, get onto a Twitter war and everybody's going to say, well, who's your authority by whose standard, by whose word it is always whose authority. And our answer is dumb biblical faith, God's authority, his definitions. And they're going to kick at that. And you go, well, what about your authority? And they have nothing. They, they, they will just refer to this gobbly. What about your pathology? Show me this scientifically. They'll have nothing to give you. So we have to start at the starting point of God. And remember, the very end point is either the, the, the life of your family or the complete state control of your family. Please forgive me my allergies. You can scientifically observe my eyes bulging red and my disgusting full of snot nose. There you go, Tim. Back to you. Solomon in the Proverbs, that's one of my favorite passages. And I do read this to my children um, because it binds that relationship together. Um, even, even if you're a Christian, I think we sometimes, we don't get this concretely. We believe that all, all of life sort of um, ethereally just kind of comes to us, that, that we go seek God in some detached format. Um, just sort of in, in a, in a private and totally subjective way. And the Bible says, one of the ways you learn to walk in the things of God is actually by listening to your parents, because they're going to teach you what God's word has to say. And, and you should actually take your father's commandment with you and go. And so as parents, sometimes we have this passive, like, oh, we're just going to let our hands off and, and just pray that our children, um, sort of 
subjectively on their own come to terms with God instead of saying the Bible commands us to do this. And this is what ties into the episode. Who is responsible to do this? Who is responsible to guide a child through gender dysphoria or through social contagions or social pressures that they're feeling through Instagram or TikTok, uh, and, and they want to belong to a certain group and there are certain expectations there. And sometimes there's even certain demands to throw off um, the teaching of your parents. This is often what takes place in this world is, Hey, but your parents have probably taught you, you know, not to do this, not to think this way. If you want to be free, if you want to be who you are, then throw off the commands of your parents, throw off the law of your mother. And this is exactly what scripture warns a young person. Don't throw it away. And, you know, Mike, you talk about getting into these wars and saying, show me your pathology, show me the science here. But unfortunately, we, we have so been – this argument has been slipping through our fingers for the last 10 years because this idea of deconstruction has already removed things like logic and science and argumentation out of the toolbox because those, those have now been considered um, tools of colonialism and white supremacy. So if, if you say to somebody, you need to be able to prove to me what you're saying or believing is true, they'll just come back at you and say, well, that's, that's Western colonial bigotry. And I don't, and, and just the fact that you're asking for that shows that you're a colonial white supremacist bigot. And so you can see how the premise of the whole subject has crumbled beneath us. And we don't even have an epistemological or logical foundation or spiritual foundation to attack any of this, which is why, Mike, we're going back to not merely prove it to me in science. We're going back to God's word because we need to rebuild the foundation of how we know these things. And it is not purely on science. It is because God said, I made you a certain way and I command you to go a certain way. And your parents are, are actually key figures in guiding you in that way. Science only observes what actually is. It only observes. And so you're absolutely right, Tim. When we say go back to science, it is because we have pre-concluded a number of things. And that's what everybody has to remember. We start with things that cannot be explained. Uh, uh, we start with things that can only be explained by an authority who has explained it to us. Then we go and we observe the reality and we observe actual um, families on the ground. And that is why science can only do so much. You know, um, I remember the, I remember the movie speed with, uh, with Keanu Reeves and uh, it, it was this, the opening scene, you know, the bomber goes and explodes himself supposedly. And the guys are out, they're talking and, and uh, one of the cops says to Keanu Reeves, we got lucky. And Keanu Reeves said, no, we were good. And then the guy says, being good, having guts or, or being good will only get you so far and then it'll get you dead. Science only gets you so far. Because it actually is the second part. You have to accept the truth of reality before you can observe the truth of reality. And if you reject reality, if you reject God's created order, you can't observe anything. And it goes on to your point. Like, Tim, this is a woman adrift in a sea of confusion and agnosticism. 
You know, she's just flaunting her own conformity to the modern moral code and the, you know, respect and inclusivity. These are all pre-concluded ideas she's accepted. And then now she is unable to observe what she's doing to her daughter. She says in the article, Zach trusted us enough to share his gender identity with us. And my husband and I have been fully involved, fully aware, and fully supportive. We were the ones, not Zach, to have the conversation with the school about changing his pronouns and name, not because it was our right to do so, as the education minister suggests, speaking of Stephen Lecce, but because we earned the privilege of Zach's true self. So this is to, to the point of the article. It's not your right to know your child's gender identity. It's a privilege, and you earn that privilege by what? Being fully involved, fully aware, and fully what? Supportive. So she is asserting this sort of truth standard for dealing with your children who are in, in gender dysphoria. You need to be supportive and inclusive of this possibility. Mike, that's exactly why you're, you're, and she says in the opening of the article that she's agnostic. She doesn't have a clue. So she literally is adrift and she's grabbing onto this moral code that says the only way that I prove my morality as a human being, as a mother, is to be totally accepting and inclusive, to have zero discernment, to have zero discrimination against any decision, any form of life, which, by the way, they don't really commit to. Because if a child came home and said, I've decided I'm going to be a Donald Trump supporting um, straight person for the rest of my life. This mom would, would be very active in, I think, resisting that decision. So, so there's a pre-commitment at every level. And she's used the photograph of her own child on the cover of this Toronto Star article. You want to talk about privacy? Where's the privacy of the child in that decision? The, 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 there's rank hypocrisy right through here. And it's because parents are using this issue to demonstrate their moral superiority and how accepting they truly are. Hey, let me see a picture of your kid. Have you really turned them into a boy? Do you really accept that they're masculine in their gender identity? Oh, I'll show you. I'll put it on the front cover of the Toronto Star. This is this is a total violation of the child's um, security of their personhood and their and their so-called privacy that they claim to be upholding. She knows nothing. One last point. One last point, Mike. She knows nothing by her own admission, and so she offers nothing to her child. This is the saddest part. She is offering nothing to her child except total unconditional affirmation in anything that child desires, which is the opposite of what the scriptures say, which is that parents teach your children the truth that God has given you. Offer your children something. And this agnosticism that just says whatever my child wants is what they get is an abandonment of your responsibility to your child. I love the way that you've articulated that, Tim. That was really well said because. The emphasis is they know nothing, so they teach nothing. They have nothing, so they give nothing. Yeah. They, they observe nothing, so they observe nothing. Just think about that sentence. Parents must be fully involved and fully aware of what's happening in the life of their children so that they can support their kids. Okay, let's just add a few two words like you just did about Donald Trump. Fully involved, fully aware to support their kids to be... Um, gun owners against the law um, to be uh, um, gang members um, to be um, suicide bombers to be 
prostitutes, to be hookers, to be um, porn actors, um, to be violent offenders, to be like, it's, it's absurd. Parents, we, we do not fully uh, uh, become aware of what our children's children are doing so that we can always support them. We shape them. We, we correct them. And again, Tim, you've pointed out the hypocrisy. It's not just that she doesn't want parents shaping them. Uh, she's saying it, it, parents can shape their kids if they fully support them. But if the parents don't fully support their children, well, then the state needs to come in and needs to uh, have its way with these children and fully support every decision those children would make, which, by the way, the school can't uphold legitimately either. Because if a child tries to say in algebra class that the answer to the answer is the answer, and a teacher's like, no, you clearly did that problem wrong, they correct them. So again, everybody, whose authority are you accepting? Are you going to be a Bible-filled, faith-filled Christian? Or are you going to be duped every every time someone tries to say something smart? And remember, they're going as far as your children. Because again, Tim, this is all the right hints. I want you to get to the UN, UN uh, Rights uh, uh, General Assembly story, Tim, because where this is all going, that this right to privacy means that they can take these children from your house. So right now in Canada, they're talking about the idea of if you send your children off to school, what can this child do without your, uh, without, and, and the teachers do without your knowledge. But the next step is once the school has the knowledge of your disapproval, then what does the authority of the state have to remove the child from your disapproval? The and in the CBC show, the Ontario Today show, they they come out and say that schools are a safe place, an escape from the home. They they say it in plain in plain language. There, there's not euphemisms here. This is not education in partnership with the parent. This is education in spite of the parent. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes, but I do want to go to um, because Canada has weighed in on uh, a child's right to so-called privacy and other rights before. Um, 30 years ago, the UN General Assembly and the UN Human Rights Commission published uh, resolutions on the rights of children. Canada signed it in 1990, and in 1991, they ratified two optional protocols against, uh, against these conditions. Children serving in armed conflict. So Canada, about 30, about 30 years ago, ratified uh, a provision that children are not to be used in armed conflict. That's child soldiers, right? It's pretty easy to condemn. Uh, and also children being used for pornography and human trafficking for any purpose and for child prostitution. Mike, you just brought those up, I, whether you knew I was about to bring these up or not, that these a child has a right not to be exploited in these ways. A child has a right not to be sold for any purpose. A child has a right not to appear in sexually explicit material. A child has a right to be spared from armed conflict. Tim, can okay? I jump in Canada really ratified quick. these things. Let yeah. me jump in really quick. A child does not have a right to privacy if they're hiding from their parents armed conflict. A child does not have the right to privacy if they are involved in the making of pornography. A child does not have the right. This is where 
the age old statement of per parents being the legal guardian, guardian to be on guard, to be on watch, to be vigilant and guards watch outside enemies. And they also turn around and they're supposed to help guide the moral behavior of those inside the city as well. Parents are guardians. So of course, and by the way, no, Tim, I had, I, I just knew that you were going to bring up a UN story. I didn't know the exact specifics of it. Chil rights have limitations when a, de a defined law that is moral protects them. Go on. So there's, there's guiding principles, which every resolution, every UN resolution has guiding principles that they state to, to, to come up with their resolutions. So these are our pre-commitments. Uh, two of them I want to share with you is uh, guiding principle three and guiding principle 12. The first one, uh, three, is titled the best interest of the child. This principle places the best, the best interests of the child as the primary concern in making decisions that may affect them. As adults, so it distinguishes between adults and children in a way that I think this debate has done for us as well. All adults, including those who are involved in decision makings related to budgets, policy, and the law should do what is best for children. When adults make decisions, they should think about how their decisions will affect children. So now take, take a snapshot of the, the gender clinic at sick kids. These are decisions that a, a child does not have access to a scalpel and anesthetic. Okay. A child does not have access to, um, um, to, to medical charts and all of these tools that would be used for so-called gender affirming care. A child cannot do these things to his or herself. These are decisions adults are making that, that, that there is no evidence that is in the best child of interest of the child because they are violating the biological reality that this child has been um, brought into. So these are commitments that Canada has signed on to that we are now acting in violation of. Article 12, respect for the views of children. They say, oh, this is where, oh, great. This is where we will come in and see that transgender care is, is respecting the views of children. Listen to this. This principle states that children um, have the right to say what they think should happen and their opinions taken into account. Caveat, in the guiding principle of the UN, this does not mean that children can tell their parents what to do. The convention encourages adults to listen to the opinions of children and involve them in decision-making, but does not give children authority over adults. Note that Article 12 does not interfere with a parent's right and responsibility to express their views on, uh, of their children. Moreover, the convention recognizes that the that the level of a child's participation in decisions must be appropriate to the child's level of maturity. Children's ability to form and express their opinions develops with age, and most adults will naturally give the views of a teenager greater weight than those of a preschooler, whether in family, legal, or administrative decisions. This is the UN General Assembly saying these things 30 years ago that obviously four-year-olds do not get to decide what happens in terms of surgery with their bodies. When your son went to sick kids, he was not asked, would you like the doctors to save your life or no? Because it is a parent's responsibility to act in the best interest of the child to save their life, which in some cases means intervention and some cases means intervention from making a poor decision. 
So a parent who says, I am not going to hold my child back from these life altering, life destroying uh, decisions is in violation of even the UN. Now they're already radically in violation of God's word, but they're even in violation of the conventions that Canada has already signed on and ratified 30 years ago. You can see how far we have abandoned even a, a sort of global reductionist view of humanity, which does not include God as supreme, but at least in some ways was acting in accordance with what God has commanded. We are now throwing these things aside and saying, hey, I think the child should totally tell me how they want to live their life and I should utterly conform to it if I'm going to be a good parent. Even the UN 30 years ago would have slapped you upside the head and said, are you dumb? What are you doing? You can listen to your child. You can sit down and they can tell you, I'm confused. I don't understand what's happening to my body. Sometimes I feel like a girl or sometimes I feel like a boy or there's the people at school who are pressuring me to act a certain way and I don't know what to do. Yes, sit down and listen to your child. That is, that is, a, that is the place to begin as a parent when you're discipling your children. To listen to the concerns that they're having and the influences that they're having. But you don't have to submit to it. This is what parenting is. And apparently this was common sense 30 years ago. And parents are acting like morons now, thinking that the best parenting advice is to let the child tell you how they want to live the rest of their lives sexually and physically. When they're eight, nine, 10 years old, they don't have a clue what's going on. They need your help. And when you abandon them, you throw them to the sharks. You throw them to the wolves of the gender clinics. That's what they are. Okay, so let's just talk about this a little bit further to understand why the UN, where you, a place where you, where you and I are typically very critical of the thoughts that come out of the UN, where even back 30 years ago, the UN would be navigating through a discussion point here. So first of all, the note on the article already is hinting at the fact that we get it, that parents are likely upset that we are talking about the rights of children, partly because maybe progression and moving in that direction would then move to say children tell adults what to do. So we're being clear right now to, to have this ongoing conversation or, the, or, the, or to promote this ongoing uh, conversation between parent and child. The reason... Why they're doing that is because they, as you just said, Tim, 30 years ago, were still recognizing God's creation order. Now, look, I want to quote from Willem Allenel about, about God's creation order. In creation order, God reveals his will as a normative principle. This is the beginning, the creative starting point, you could put in brackets, for science. The plumb line that makes life possible, you could say reproduction or biology. This beginning provides such uh, for life with, con with content, and it directs that life in kingdom service towards Christ. Now he goes on to say, and, and this is my adaptation of some of his thoughts, Autonomous and idolatrous people do not acknowledge this pre-existing creation order. And in their positiving of life or their, uh, their, their bringing to life of life, um, positivizing, 
in their bringing of uh, an idea to form, um, in, in their bringing of an idea from greater than zero, you know, it's zero because it's just my thought and now it's one because I'm, I've done something about it. They incorporate various anti-normative elements, anti-normative structural institutional laws. And it is only the light of God's word revelation that is needed to redirect them when autonomous people find that creational principles do actually exist, function, and come to light in their very concrete, measurable reality. And their anti-normative ideas are corrupt and corrode life. So what we have here is the UN still recognizing that very obvious creation order. God's law structures, God's creation order is literally written into reality itself. And that is how many complex discussions can happen as long as that creation order is recognized. You can... You recognize that a, that a child that a, that that a parent procreates. You recognize that a child has feelings. You rec you observe the world, but you have to pre accept this creation idea in order for you to observe it correctly. Otherwise, you just incorporate anti normative ideas. And Tim, that's what's going on right now. I want to give you a chance to take give your you know hot takes on the situation. But what I do want to follow out is what does this actually mean religiously? We'll talk about this at the end. This means simply that people are making imaginative idols again. You go ahead and have your talk and I'll close with that. Sure. Um, There's something that we've been saying with respect to education for, I think, a couple of years now. Um, and now they're kind of rounding the bend on this idea that they they've come out in the open and said that schools are an escape from home. This is now, this is now open rhetoric, um, that the school is a safe place, um, that the alienation that was intended in the school system is, is now coming full circle to the point where parents are now seen as a barrier and an obstacle and a, and a detriment to a child's self-realization and, and, and success, as opposed to just merely being ill-equipped or maybe not quite trained enough. The parents, well, we're professional educators, so let us teach your kids science and math. Parents go, yeah, that makes sense. I'm an accountant or I'm, you know, I'm a mechanic. I, I can't teach them that. So parents are no longer viewed as just neutrally not equipped enough. They're now seen as a barrier and as a harm and as a detriment to their child's well-being. Um, and, and so that's now being stated openly. Uh, we have to talk also about the fact that um, the, the whole premise, whether you're on the conservative or liberal side of um, the ideology, conservatives, we cannot sign onto the same premise that identity just comes from within. That, well, because I'm a conservative family, I teach my children, you know, to, to, to embrace um, masculine and feminine ideals because that's normal. We look at it from a biblical perspective that God actually gives us these identities. Um, Psalm 139 says, you knit me in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, that God has a purpose and an intention where he unites your body 
and your soul and spirit into a, a, to a complete being that our bodies are just as much of our identity as who we conceive ourselves to be. Uh, Nancy Piercy, a, a book that I would recommend to our listeners, Love Thy Body, is a fantastic uh, uh, book dealing with this subject that the body ought to be viewed as a sign of God's creation. As you would say, Mike, it leads us to normative structures that we don't reject our bodies in favor of what our minds say. So we see that God creates the whole purpose, uh, the whole person, including the body. Um, again, that parents' rights over a child's upbringing are not based on arbitrary power structures, which is what the left would argue, right? That that power and hierarchy is bad, but they're they're based on the government that God has established within the family. Because parents are commanded by God to raise their children in the way they should go. That's from Proverbs. And to teach the commandments of God. Uh, whereas the left, the, the pro-LGBT lobby has engaged in rhetorical propaganda. Where if, if you're a parent who would resist these changes, you're called extreme, unsafe, and threatening to a child's life. Uh, the liberal minister of women, gender equality, and youth, which is... Silly on its face, uh, Marcy Ian said in the House of Com or said on record that um, these policies that just mandate schools to notify parents are putting trans students in a situation of life or death. This is such this is such exaggerated and predatory language to meant to intimidate people, not to to raise their own children and to actually guide them through these issues. And I would say, lastly, Mike that I would say Christian parents, we have fallen into this because we have accepted the premise that a child is an autonomous individual who must simply uh, be given the right options and, and, and that the choice that they make for themselves, the authentic choice is always the best choice. We, we even in the Christian faith have prized choice and identity and, and, and self-acknowledgement over acknowledging God and pursuing him. Um, Muskoka Bible Center in Ontario, Canada has done, they've completed a one-year research project to examine how parents view their role in teaching faith to their children. And a whopping, listen to this, 73% of the parents surveyed believe that it is essential to offer their children religious choice without pressure. This is a stark contrast with the command from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6, which commands parents to keep up daily, regular, formal, and informal instruction about the truth with respect to God's covenant-keeping character. So even Christian parents have adopted this public school mindset that a child ought to make their own decisions on their own volition for their own purposes, and whatever they choose must be respected at any age, at any point. And of course, we're not talking about violent coercion. We're not talking about a physical or emotional abuse. We're not talking about using the tools of raw um, physical force or any of these things that we would consider sinful in terms of parenting. We're not advocating any of those things. We are advocating for the fact that God has given parents children as a stewardship, as a heritage, the Psalms say, that, that they, are, uh, they are vessels to be poured into and to be shaped for the glory of God. And so we're not advocating brute 
force or, or shaming or any of these manipulative tools. We're talking about parents using the tools that God has given them of a of an example of faithfulness of time spent in the word and prayer together as a family and instruction, instruction about the history of the world, how God created Adam and Eve and families and civilizations and what disobedience and obedience looks like and faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And we pass these on to our children. These are the tools that God has given us. And so I would say we are just as guilty of that in the Christian community that we've adopted the, the, the false premises that children are just these, in, these raw individuals before the state. That's sort of radical egalitarianism, which is that everyone is a, is a raw democratic union with an equal voice in the shaping of whatever occurs to them. Um, but we have to go back and remember that God has created spheres of sovereignty and that children are under the loving protection and authority of their parents before they are accountable to the state. And these, these spheres have their own important roles in society. But parents, do not neglect and abandon your role as governors over your family in an economic and spiritual and um, formative cultural sense. And I think if we reclaim that, we're going to start answering um, these, these ideals that are, that are ripping families apart and, and, and intentionally so. Um, so go back to Deuteronomy. Go back to the role and the responsibility of the parent. Um, and this is the way we will answer um, the encroachment and overreach of the state that says, hey, we are a safe place from you. No, no, no. Parents are a safe place from the state. Parents are the first protection of a child against the overreaches of the state. So I keep blowing my nose with my mic muted because my allergies are so bad. And you just watch me do it and then you keep going. And then I got to go back into it again. So then you got to keep monologuing. Um, so folks, that's why that was a 45 minute monologue. No, Tim, that was really good stuff. Let me close with this. Why is it potentially that we are, what we're conceding this? So, um, there's a ton of Christians, uh, the, the Christians who would probably attend Muskoka Bible Con conference or Muskoka Bible center would be a pretty good observational group that would fall into this. So why is it that broadly evangelicals are, are buying into this? And here's the reason. Isaiah 2.8, the land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their fingers have made. Now, let me explain that for a second. When we think of idols, we think of little cats that go like this. We think of Buddhas. Um, we think of uh, kissing special rocks or holding special crystals. Um, we think of, uh, images that are cast in stone or cast in gold of, of a deity, you know, a, a golden elephant with many, many arms. And many of these idols are often very suggestive, you know, uh, uh, very suggestive of sexuality. And then when we think of idols of our heart, those are not the things that we go out and fashion with our fingers like pieces of gold, but they're like something I'm fashioning something like I'm fashioning a child. I'm, I'm, I'm building a home. I'm, I'm building a, a workplace. I'm, 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 I'm building a church. And look, this is what an idol is in its, in its essence. An idol is any representation of an authoritative word that we place above God's word. 
So an idol is any representation of an authoritative word, uh, word that we place above God's word. So if you look at your kid and you go, does that child conform or look anything like what scripture describes a child should be? And your answer is no. They look what they want to be. Then you've made your child an, uh, an idol. Or if you go, oh, no, no, they look what they want to be because the school told me that or the or the mob told me that, then you've made an idol of people pleasing. This is how we discover whether we have idols in our hearts. Are we accepting God's word for something? Now, again, you have to remember philosophically, everybody has to start with an authority. There's not a single person who will tell you to go do something and you go, why? Where they will not point to another authority. And if they themselves point to themselves as an authority, usually you're dealing with a self-righteous egomaniac. And so why we're seeing this happen, why we're literally seeing a woman say that her daughter is a boy and then an entire news cycle in Canada following this type of controversy, it is because the land is full of idols. The land is full of the idol of comfort. The land is full of the idol of sex. The land is full of the idol of greed. The land is full of the idol of arrogance and, and pride. We literally have a pride month in Canada and in the United States. How do you know something's an idol again? Well, if money is an idol, then we know money is an idol because we've accepted someone else's word how to get it and how much of it and how to store it. If sex is an idol, we've accepted someone else's other words for having it, using it, selling it. And so every single one of these topics is coming back to, am I going to create an idol of someone or something? and acknowledge their word as an authoritative word above other people's words. Listen to what scripture says about idolatry in Romans chapter two. This is what the apostle Paul wrote through the guiding of the spirit. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made like mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. Why do you think people would do that? Well, you'd make an image of a mortal man having sex with a mortal woman. You make an image of that so you can put it up high on a, on a, on a, on a platform and you can convince the entire town that's what men and women have to do in order to worship the God that that represents. And so then you get the desires of your heart by making and fashioning a God out of it. That's why we would go and do these things. First commandment says, you shall have no other gods other than me. The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in any form of anything under heaven or on earth or beneath it or in the waters below. So let me end off with saying this. If your boy is walking around looking like a girl, cross-dressing, or your daughter is walking around cross-dressing like a boy, or someone is trying to convince you that that is normal. You cannot be deceived by their lie because all they're doing is they are creating idols of something and trying to convince you into idolatry. But instead, you have to reject that. You have to accept by faith God's word about what he says about creation 
And then you can turn around and explain everything very easily because you've accepted God's word. So therefore you can observe God's creation. You can't observe it perfectly, but that is what you can do scientifically. You can accept that there is a male and female because we've been told it. And then you can go and now observe that very rightfully. And everybody, if you make an idol, if, if the church continues to be full of idols and not stopping all of this type of stuff, I mean, stopping it publicly. I mean, speaking up the way Tim and I are, are, are teaching about this regularly. I mean, we're, how we're holding events, how we're organizing protests, all of these things. If you don't do it because you love your little idol, you love your little idol of nobody knowing your little family doesn't exist. They've said what they're doing out loud, and that is they are going to give the children of Canada the right to do anything they want, and then they're going to come after you for not allowing, uh, allowing that privately. So unless we destroy these idols and regain our voice, the end result will be Christian children taken from Christian homes because so many people who call themselves Christians who teach in the public school, who are principals in the public school, who send their children to the public school, who do nothing about this, the consequences are going to be dire. We've been saying this for years. They have now said it out loud. Go read your Canadian newspapers. My name is Michael Thiessen. That's Timothy Tyso. You have been listening to The Other Club. All of our podcasts are available on the Fight, Laugh, Feast app, which has now been um, uh, renamed to Pub TV. And also you can get all of our shows from Liberty Coalition Canada that are produced by Christian Week on the Liberty Dispatch feed on um, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and whatnot. And you can get our shows on the Liberty Coalition Canada feed on Rumble. You can see the video uh, trigger warning. Don't watch this video. Just listen to the audio because I look like a wreck. Anyways, God bless. Godspeed. Have a great day.